prayer, shall we? Father, um, we have just sung our prayer for this morning. We have gathered this morning uh, in the early hours of the first day of the new week that you would speak to us. Speak to us through your word, encourage your church, challenge us, convict us, and educate us, Lord. We need to learn uh, from your word that we would understand better our great salvation in Christ. Uh, We just pray for the ministries uh, scattered across our campus right now to all ages. Please bless those who have prepared their lessons to open the word to share today that the word of God would impact Fellowship Bible Church, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I wanted to take just a minute, and I wanted to welcome this young couple right over here, Josh and Rebecca Saul. Wave your hand, Josh. Um, Josh and Rebecca are... Uh, acquainted acquaintances and friends. Uh, Rebecca and my daughter Tasha were uh, very close in Bible college years ago at Appalachian Bible College. Um, Josh grew up in a pastor's home up in New Jersey in an IFCA Bible church. They're here visiting this weekend, um, and Josh, and they will actually be slipping out of this service before it's over, I'm pretty sure. And uh, um, that's not an omen. That's just reality. Okay. Uh, Josh is preaching this morning at Bakerton Bible Church, and this is a, a get acquainted weekend, an opportunity for them to see what's happening here, for us to get to know them better as uh, we consider and seek God's will for a shepherd and a pastor and a preacher for Bakerton Bible Church. We need a leader. We need a shepherd over there for that to grow. And so we appreciate them being willing to interrupt their schedules and to be here and to consider God's will for the future. So thank you. God bless you, Josh, as you open the word this morning in Rebecca's so nice to see you again. Now, let's just imagine for a moment that you have a friend who's never been to church, okay? You have a friend, they've never been to church, and they've been talking to you about what church is like. And um, you've been telling them, and, um, and so they decide to come. They don't know anything about church. They don't know very much about God at all. They don't know anything about Jesus. And they want to come to church with you. And so one day, lo and behold, they call you up and they say, let's go. I want to go to church with you this morning. And so off to church you go. And on that day, it's going to be a communion service. And in that service, the music and the hymns have been carefully chosen to reflect the truths and the reality of the communion service itself and celebrate our salvation in Christ. But, uh, but you're very sensitive because you have this friend there who's never been to church before. They have no idea what's going on. And so you are seeing and hearing everything through your friend's eyes. And uh, the first song that you sing is, um, uh, there is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of Jesus Christ. And the next hymn comes up and it is, are you washed in the blood? And you're hearing this and you're wondering what your friend is thinking. And the song continues. Are you washed in the soul cleansing blood of the lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the lamb? Well, the service continues and, and they begin to sing right before the cup is served and they begin to sing, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains. They lose all their guilty stains and sinners plunged Beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And then the pastor, as you hold your cup, says, this uh, is the blood of Christ represented in our cup. Let us drink it together. (laughs) Have you ever thought about how strange that is? How odd that we talk so much about blood That when we turn in our Bibles, there is so much, particularly in the Old Testament, there's blood everywhere you look. And when you get to the New Testament, then this this element of the blood of Jesus Christ becomes a predominant theme. 
And if you don't understand, don't you think that's just the craziest thing you ever heard? I mean, that's just right up there with a big fish that swallowed a man and then spit him up three days later on dry ground. You Christians are weird. I don't get you. Well, this morning, as I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 9, and we make our way through the completion of this chapter, it is all about the blood of Jesus Christ. So if you don't get this, um, maybe today a little bit of the light will begin to click on. I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word there to that New Testament book of Hebrews. We've been working our way through, and the writer has been making from chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, and into chapter 10. He's in a very theological, doctrinal uh, talk, message. He's... He's speaking to this Hebrew group of people. Um, We don't really know who they were. We don't know who the author was. But we know that they understood Judaism. We understood, we know that they understood their Old Testament at a deep level. They understood the nuance of the entire bloody sacrificial system of the Old Testament. And in fact, part of What's going on in this book is they want, at some level, to return to the old ways. And they, they are not convinced that Jesus Christ is greater, greater than Aaron of old, the high priest, greater than angels who helped give the law to Moses, greater than Moses himself, um, that he's of a high priestly order of Melchizedek, whatever that means. And, and the author is spending much of his time. And now, chapter 7, 8, and 9, and into 10, he's in a deep, deep theological talk. And he's trying to convince them that Christ is greater. And he spent the first part of the chapter, if you were here last week, we took time to try to educate ourselves about the elements of the tabernacle, this place of worship that God had instructed Moses to build. It was a tent-like structure that they would pack up and travel with them. And then later the temple itself was designed after this. And this was given to them by God, given to Moses by God, replicating what the Bible implies is a heavenly tabernacle, And so the earthly tabernacle is a type or a representation of the presence of God in heaven. So it's steeped in spiritual significance and typology and symbolism. And we tried to grab that in our minds last week a little bit and understand that when these Hebrews who love the elements of their Old Testament worship And they understood it at a deep level that when the writer of Hebrews begins to tell them that we have a, that Christ is greater, that there's even, we have a high priest who's greater and we have a greater sanctuary even than the earthly sanctuary. They can't get their heads wrapped around this. And as we move through chapter nine and and seek to complete it, he now slips into this discussion. It's a one-way discussion. He's teaching them. He's convincing them. He's showing them that, that The blood of Jesus Christ is superior to the blood of any animal sacrifices. So as we enter into this, let's take just a minute, and I put it on our notes there if you want, and let's just um, take just a minute and let's help ourselves and remind ourselves why it is that there's so much emphasis on blood in the Bible. We are admitting straight up front, And maybe there's someone in here right now that you're like, man, he's talking about blood. That's crazy. But why? Why is there so much blood in the Bible? Why all these animal sacrifices and the blood that flowed? No doubt over the course of about a thousand years of practice of the Old Testament Levitical law and sacrificial system, there had to have been more than one million animals slaughtered. And if you take a calf or you take a goat and you slit it and you drain its blood, there's at least a couple of quarts in the calf probably. At least a quart of blood is going to come out of a goat. And there's just gallons of blood that flowed over the course of a thousand years. It soaked the ground. If you stop and think about it, at Passover, the air would have stunk. There would have been a smell to the old covenant. 
It was the smell of blood. What is that all about? Well, uh, let's just help ourselves and remind ourselves for just a minute that, first of all, that the emphasis on blood in the Bible is there to teach us that sin demands the shedding of blood. If it weren't for sin, there would be no blood. But because there's sin, there is the shedding of blood. Uh, We'll keep thinking about this. Let's develop it. Now, let's make clear there is nothing mystical or mysterious about the blood itself. Okay? It wasn't intrinsically special necessarily, but blood... The flowing of blood and the letting of blood, the slitting of the juggler on a calf or a lamb, sticking the killing knife into it and watching the blood flow was a representation of watching the blood flow out. The the life is in the blood. And when the lifeblood flows out, the breath stops and the animal goes limp and it's now dead and And so sin brings death. The bloodiness of animal sacrifices under the old covenant taught the worshiper that, first of all, sin requires death. So you stop and think about how actively engaged they were in the Old Testament sacrificial system. And it wasn't too many weeks ago in Hebrews I was talking about that, having a lamb and killing it. But when you're hands-on engaged... And you have preserved and carefully raised in your pens and in your back pasture because there was rules about this. You you didn't just bring any old lamb. You didn't just bring any old calf. You had to bring a lamb uh, as much as possible without spot or blemish. You kept the, the premium from the herd, the, the best of the herd, the best of the flock. And so how's your mind working, especially when you fall into the routine of religion? Oh, man, I really hate to kill this calf. That's a nice calf. He's just got all the good marks, and I could get, I could get really good price for him at the market, but now I'm going to kill him. And so now I'm forced to think through, why am I killing this animal? I'm killing this animal because God has a rule. And the rule is that wherever there's sin, there's death. That's an irrevocable rule, by the way. That's a reality. And it will always be true. Wherever there's sin, there's death. Sin always brings death. Sin always produces death. And so in the Old Testament, when he takes the killing knife to a lamb or a calf, he's realizing that the reason this is happening isn't because of the animal's sin. The reason it's happening is because of my sin. I have sinned, and so something has to die. Secondly, we we recognize that there's an emphasis on blood in the Bible because Offering an animal sacrifice is serious. It was like a wake-up call to me. It engaged me emotionally. I didn't like that, putting the killing knife to my good animal. And it, it demanded a spirit of repentance from the worshiper. You didn't do this lightly. But there was the sense in the mind of the worshiper that I'm sorry for my sin. I repent. I admit my sin. I repent of my sin. I I don't want to keep sinning. And I transfer my sin onto the animal. And thirdly, then, I beg God for mercy. That God would be merciful to me. And that God would see by his own rule that where there's sin, there's death. And so I'm going to put the killing knife to this calf and the blood flows and that represents death that took place for my sin. God, would you be merciful to me? And death is ugly. Sin is ugly. And sin always produces death. There's so much emphasis on blood in the Bible because it reminds us that sin requires death it, it demands a spirit of repentance when you're involved in these sacrifices. And, and it's a time where the serious worshiper would plead for mercy. God, hold back from me what I deserve. And this animal paid a price. And there's, there's also then another picture. There's another reality. And that is it was to set the stage. It was to set the stage for the substitutionary death of Christ. Because what you have here is you have an animal that did nothing wrong. And the worshiper who's putting the killing knife 
in the innocent animal recognizes that it was their sin transferred onto the animal. The animal didn't understand this, but the animal was innocent, you could say. The animal, the animal didn't deserve this, but my sin brought a death, and something had to pay. And that's the reality of it. And, and so when Isaiah, in Isaiah 53 far and away the clearest, most prophetic passage in all of the Old Testament, foreshadowing that there would be a Messiah and he would be a spotless lamb and, and, and all of our sins would be laid on him. The iniquity of us all would be laid on him. And so at some level, the Old Testament worshiper, as he killed this animal and the blood flowed and soaked the ground and splattered on his feet and got on his hands... And as the priests participated and the blood just flowed and the dead animals laid on the ground, they recognized that somehow this was a foreshadowing of, of somehow of a Messiah who would come and somehow our sin will be transferred on him because the Lord will lay on him the iniquity of us all. And they, they knew that. They memorized that. They understood that. Psalm 22 is another passage that foreshadows that there would be a sin bearer. So God used that in the mind of the worshiper. And I thought it would be helpful for us to just think about that for a minute. And now as we turn our attention to Hebrews chapter 9, and we want to complete the chapter, let's, let's back up to verse 11. We went through verse 14 last week, but let's back up to verse 11. And what I want us to do is I want us to receive from the, the writer here in chapter 9, why blood is so important to Christians is we're not we're not like some kind of pagans that live out in the middle of the jungle somewhere with bones in our nose and then we cut ourselves and we sacrifice babies and we celebrate blood we're not some kind of demon satanists that celebrate blood or drink blood in some kind of ceremonial ritual that's bizarre and yet At the center of our worship is the blood of Jesus Christ. Why is it so important to us? And this is exactly what the writer wants to communicate to the recipients of this letter. You need to understand that there is a blood that is far superior to the blood of animals. See, they wanted to sacrifice animals. It felt good, these external religious components The rituals of religion made them feel good and safe and secure. And he's trying to show them that the blood of animals was absolutely inadequate and that there is a superior blood. And that superior blood is the blood of Jesus Christ, far superior to animal blood. What I want to do, um, I found it almost impossible to outline the passage today. Uh, I just want to make a running list of... of, uh, uh, of the ways that the writer is communicating to the recipients, which includes us, as to how the blood of Jesus Christ is superior to the blood of animals and why, as Christians today, the blood of Jesus Christ should be so important to us. First of all, I want you to see it's because this blood of Jesus Christ is acceptable in the heavenlies in the very presence of God. Okay? Let's read. We're going to just read the segments of the passage, and we're going to draw the points out of the passage to the best of my ability this morning. Verse 11, Hebrews 9. It will help if you will watch closely or listen very closely to the text. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, or tabernacle, parentheses, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He's talking about the heavenly tabernacle. Verse 12, he, that's Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So let's picture God on his throne 
and he's in the holy of holies of heaven, which is the holy place of heaven. We don't know much about it, but evidently that is part of what was replicated in the tabernacle given to Moses to build. And this is the presence of God, and it's the holy of holies, and it is the mercy seat. It is where God dwells. And Jesus comes in, and he has a bowl of blood. He has a bowl of blood, and the father says, um, what you got there? And he says, I have the blood of bulls and goats. What's it for? It is for the covering of the sin of the people of the earth. And God says, get it out of here. It's not acceptable. But Jesus comes in, having shed his own blood, and he has, and you could picture it, a bowl of blood. And God says, what's it for? What's that bowl of blood for? And Jesus says, well, it's my blood. But weren't you the high priest? I'm the, I am a high priest. Didn't you sacrifice bulls and goats? Nope. I sacrificed my own blood and here it is. And God says, that is a satisfactory payment for the sins of the world. Now, there is some extreme uh, theologians who believe that Jesus actually presented blood to God. I don't think so myself. I think it's a spiritual reality that was demonstrated in a physical way at Calvary. I don't think that Jesus ever presented a bowl full of his blood to God. But when he said it was finished, he represented the fact that the plan of salvation for paying for the sins of the world was complete and it was represented, his death was represented in the blood that flowed to the ground that day. And it was done. But isn't that remarkable that God in the holy place of heaven receives the blood of Jesus as an acceptable sacrifice for the sins of all mankind? Well, that's number one reason in the heavenly tabernacle, this blood is acceptable. He says in verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy place. By the way, that's where we get our title. We're going to see it again in the passage. The once and for all work of Christ He entered once and for all into the holy places, into heaven, into the holy place, into the holy of holies, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The second reason that the blood of Jesus Christ is superior to the blood of animals and is important to Christians is that it is capable of securing an eternal redemption. That is, you can be bought out of the slave market of sin and the only commodity that can do that, no money can do it, the commodity that can buy you out of the slave market of sin is the shed blood of Christ representing his death for your sin. Remarkable. And notice, it was a once and for all act and it was eternal. That is a verse about your eternal security. You can't lose your salvation, people. You can't lose it. He did it once and for all. And it's done. And the father is satisfied. And the commodity has been paid. And the Hebrew believers say, I really have a hankering to get my killing knife out and go kill a calf and go kill a goat. It makes me feel so good to say my prayers and to kill the animal and to catch the blood and for us to go through the ritual at the tavern. And the the writer said, why? Why would you do that? Those religious trappings are nothing. The the commodity that counts in the face of the Father is the blood of Christ once and for all. It's done. And so you have an eternal redemption bought and paid for by the blood of the Lamb, who's also the high priest. Gets a little confusing. Number three, this blood is able to purify the conscience. We talked about this last week. I love this concept. Look at verses 13 and 14 now. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer. Okay, remember on the day of atonement, they offered a red heifer on the altar. They burnt it up. They kept the ashes. They put them in a bucket. And then for the next year until the next day of atonement, one year later, okay, the high priest did this. One year later, they had this bucket of ashes from the day of atonement when the sins of the entire nation were purged or covered in the eyes of God by the high priest when he went into the Holy of Holies only once a year, but the next year they would do it again. He would keep the ashes of this heifer so that if you 
became unclean, you touched a dead body, you stepped in something, you, you ate something you shouldn't eat that was unclean. This is a ceremonial reality. You could go to the priest and you were unclean. You touched a sick person with an open pore sore and you were unclean. They could take the ashes of the heifer, put it in a jar, put hyssop in water and stir it up. And they could take that and put, smear it on you. And it represented a, a carryover from that last day of atonement. And you are now ceremonial clean again. And so that's why the ashes of the heifer were important because it was saved from the day of atonement. And so now you could, okay, so back to our text, verse 13 again. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons, okay, somebody who become impure, with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, all right, so that would get you to where you were in the eyes of the priest pure and you didn't have to be unclean. How much more, verse 14, Will the blood, there it is again, the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will his blood purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? So the reality is that the blood of animals could not cleanse the conscience. It only gave a temporary covering so that you could be considered clean in the eyes of God And there were certain sins that there was no offering for. You just had to die for those sins. The rebellious sin of murder and adultery and things like that. There really was no way out. But it is able to purify the conscience. The blood of Jesus Christ. And you say, wait a minute, Pastor Van. You're talking about the things that I think about that I know I did that were really, really, really awful. Yeah. Things that Nobody knows about me, right? Things that happened when I was a 19-year-old college sophomore. Yes. I can never forget that, Pastor Van. I can't forget it. No, but you can't forget it. You need to not dwell on it. But here's what's most important about that. That when you have been to the cross and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you from your sin, it cleans your conscience. That is, it purifies you so that you can stand before God and there's no blemish on your conscience and on the record. And when God looks at your conscience, it's not there. You can remember it tucked in the crevices of your mind and you go, I can't believe I did that. And you can't believe the hurt that you caused and the awfulness and the, I can't believe I was so sinful and rotten. I'm wrong. And I hurt everybody. I hurt my family. I lost my marriage. I hurt my mom and dad. But God has no record of it because it's been purged from the conscience of your sinfulness, of the record of your sinfulness. And you have a clean conscience. And so why would you carry around a guilty conscience for something that God has no record of? And animal blood can't do that. External religious trappings cannot accomplish that. No matter how many times you say your prayers, no matter how much money you put in the offering, no matter how benevolent you are, you cannot, no matter how many times you take communion, you cannot purge your own conscience. Only by faith, through grace of God, can the blood of Jesus Christ cleanse your conscience. And you stand just in the presence of a holy God. That, by the way, Having a clear conscience in the presence of a holy God is the most important thing about you. There is nothing else that really matters is how God sees your conscience today. So this blood is really important because number one is that it is acceptable to God in the heavenly tabernacle. It is capable of securing an eternal redemption. It is able to purify the conscience. Number four, it is able to release the sinner from the sin that had previously only been covered. Look at verse 15 again. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. I guess we're first now, just now looking at this, verse 15. Therefore, he, Jesus Christ, is the mediator, the go-between, the liaison of a new covenant. So Israel of old sinned. They reneged on their agreement with God. And so God himself, through Christ, creates a new covenant with Israel. And the church is also a beneficiary of that so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression committed under the first covenant. So think about who he's writing to. He's writing to a bunch of people who are 
trying to live under the old covenant, and they're trying to use sacrificial blood of animals to cover their sin. Remember the Jim Shoopy illustration that I told you about? I got it from Jim Shoopy. How does the Old Testament animal sacrifice blood work? How was that, that that purified them in in the eyes of God? Well, it wasn't a thorough cleansing. It was a covering. And we talked about a uh, pristine, beautiful white linen tablecloth at a, at a beautiful dinner table. And you spilled your shrimp, red shrimp cocktail, kablock, right there on it. And it's stained and you're like, oh man, I can't believe I did this. And you don't want the host had turned his head, her head and you didn't want to see. So you reach down on your lap and you pull up the beautiful white napkin that had been rolled up in the sterling silver ring and you had pulled it out and put it on your lap and you pulled it and you folded it and you laid it over the top of the red shrimp cocktail. And now nobody at the table can see that the tablecloth is stained. It's covered. That's what animal blood did to the Old Testament worshiper in the eyes of God. The stain was still there. The stain had never been removed. It would have to be taken away later. But for now, the animal blood sufficed as a covering so that it didn't offend the eyes of God. But what does he say here? Then when did it happen? He said, verse 14, um, he says in verse 15, excuse me, let's just read the whole verse again. This stuff's hard to get on one reading. Like I'm on my 99th and it's still hard to get. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. That would be Jesus. So that those who are called may receive, those are God's people coming to God, may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Number four, the blood of Jesus Christ is superior to the blood of animals because the blood of animals could only cover, but the blood of Jesus, number four, is able to release the sinner from sin that had previously only been covered. And so all of the Old Testament worshipers who sincerely trusted God and tried to obey God and followed through with the sacrificial system and used the blood of animals as a white napkin on a soiled, beautiful tablecloth to cover their sin. By faith, future, later on, Jesus Christ's blood was able to wash away the stain in the tablecloth. And it was counted unto them for righteousness retroactive. Um, Well, kind of forward. I don't know if it was retro or pro depends on how you look at it from the from the cross looking back it was retroactive from them when they gave their animal sacrifice they were looking forward and it was counted by faith to cover and the blood of jesus christ took care of all the old testament sin that had only been covered to that point that's pretty remarkable i mean if you think about these you think about these hebrews who are struggling and trying to figure this stuff out. And, he, and he, the writer is trying to convince them of the superiority of Christ. That had to resonate because they understood this stuff way better than we do. This animal blood stuff. And the sins of their grandfathers in the past. That Jesus' blood now, in the eyes of God, was an acceptable offering to redeem all of them who in obedience had offered blood sacrifice. Fifthly, Verses 16 to 22, the blood of Jesus Christ is the guarantor of the new covenant. It's the guarantor of the new covenant. Well, let's read this, try to understand. He's going to use an illustration that we understand pretty well of that of a will, like a will from your Uncle Fred in Sacramento, who's rich. And you're going to get it all. Let's pick up verse 15 again, a third or fourth time. It won't hurt us. Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from their transgressions. The blood of Jesus redeems them from their transgressions and those sins, those transgressions were committed under the first covenant in the Old Testament. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it, the will, must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, 
not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Now he's going to give an Old Testament picture illustration that the writer, the readers would have understood, verse 19. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. One more verse, 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You see how it's all about blood here, all about blood. What's happening here? What's he talking about? He's going to use a play on words with them, and he's using an illustration that everybody understands. Okay, let's try to track with this for a minute. We are on number, uh, what number are we on? We're on number five. The superiority of the blood of Christ is, is so because it is the guarantor of the new covenant. Here's his illustration. Okay, now take a look at your Bible. See how in verse 15, he talks about this death. A death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Okay, that word covenant then when you read into verse 16 is the same exact word as will for where a will is involved the the death of the one who made it must be established verse 17 for a will takes effect only at death but he's using it in a different way so he's using a civil illustration to illustrate with the covenant of spiritual reality it's the same word we we have a lot of words like that you have to look at the context to understand um, a quick word. An easy one is the word letter. How do you know what I mean by letter? Did you see the letter? Well, did, was it a letter of the alphabet or was it something somebody wrote a message letter? See, so this covenant is a relationship with God and he's illustrating it with the civil term of a will. Try to stay with me. I know this is kind of hard. Um, but it's kind of interesting too. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. A will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. All right? This is the point. God, God had a relationship with people and Jesus guaranteed the covenant that they made. What's interesting is, Okay, the the will or the covenant or the testimony that God promised to the people could only go into effect. Okay, so all of the riches in Christ, all of the promises of God for, for the salvation of his people could only go into effect if there was a will because a will once the person who made the will died. Let's go to Uncle Fred in Sacramento. Uncle Fred in Sacramento, my mom's oldest brother, I'm making that up, my mom didn't have any brothers, um, is, is filthy rich. He has ranches in Montana, Colorado, Idaho. He has oil wells in Texas. He has an island in the Caribbean that he owns. He has a yacht. He has multiple bankers that, that serve him completely on his own. He has, you got the picture. He's very wealthy. And Uncle Fred wants to give this to me. And so there's been a will made out. Are you rich? Are you rich? No, it doesn't mean anything. Uncle Fred can actually change his will. I mean, all of a sudden, you're interested in visiting him every summer and sending him Christmas cards. But what does Uncle Fred have to do for you to become rich? Uncle Fred's got to die. But once he dies, can he change the will? No, he can change the will anytime he wants. There was a contract, there was an agreement, and then the whole thing was sealed, stamped, delivered by death. And Jesus is the one who carried this out in this relationship between God the Father and people. He died and therefore he, he made the will kick in so that the riches that are God's riches in Christ become ours and we were able to receive that and he's the guarantor of the new covenant because his blood flowed and he died. That's what I think he's talking about. Therefore, he says, then he uses an Old Testament illustration to show them that everything is purified by blood. 
Not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to the people. Okay, so there was a day, and it's in Exodus chapter 24. You can read about it. Moses compiled all of the laws of God, and he wrote them down in a book, and he gathered the assembly of the people, and he declared to them, this is a covenant that God has with us. And he read all the laws that God said. And if you keep my law, God says, I'll do all this for you. And when he was done, he took, verse 19, the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Granted, the, the, Hebrew believe, the Hebrew recipients of this writing could understand what this guy's logic was way simpler than ours because they could picture immediately what Moses did. They knew that passage in Exodus. And in fact, Exodus doesn't say that the blood got sprinkled on the book itself. Josephus said that it did. But when you read the passage in Exodus, guess what? The congregation is there and Moses then takes the blood of the bulls and the goats and he starts flinging it. He flings it. That's what's in the passage. And he flings it. It gets on himself. It gets all over the items of the tabernacle. And, it, and he starts flinging it out across the congregation. And so all the people are there and they're getting splattered with blood. Because that represented the purifying effect that the old covenant would have if they kept their promise and something had to die for their sin. And here's the blood flinging through the air. And so... What Bible students believe then is that the writer of Hebrews just recognized that as Moses is flinging blood all over the place, that blood even got flung onto the, onto the articles of the covenant that he was reading to them. That's how I take it. It's kind of an interesting picture. And then he says, but indeed, under the law, almost everything. Now, there were certain offerings for very poor people that they didn't have to kill an animal. But other than that... Almost everything was purified with blood. And, but here's a truism. Here's a reality. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so what he's saying here, what I'm trying to get out of the passage, what I think he's teaching, is that under the new covenant, it's ratified then by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what makes it kick in. That's what makes it acceptable to God. And that's what we buy into. The blood of Jesus Christ is what sealed the deal. Death was covered. The sins were covered through the death of Christ and we're purified. Now we are purified from our sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. Because apart from the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sin. And under the law, almost everything is purified by the blood. I think that's hard to understand a little bit, but that's about the best I can do with it. Jesus' blood is the guarantor of the new covenant. Sixth, I want you to see that it is the essential ingredient in the forgiveness of sin. That's what we've just emphasized in verse 22. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So if you want your sin forgiven... Stop repeating the same prayer over and over and over and over and over again. Stop going and taking communion over and over and over and over again for your guilty conscience. Stop trying to help little old ladies across the street. Well, don't stop that, but don't do it for the forgiveness of your sin. Your righteous good works... I know people that I've dealt with in the past who felt so dirty that they would go wash their hands dozens of times a day because they wanted to get the dirt off themselves. They felt so guilty. They would literally, they were stuck in their brain on soap and water cleansing them and they somehow made them feel clean for just a nanosecond. And then they would go back and wash their hands again. Stop it. Stop it. Jesus Christ has provided the essential agreement, uh, the essential element for the forgiveness of your sin. It's his blood. It was his death on the cross. He substituted into your place and took your sin and paid the penalty for it. And it's gone now. The blood of Jesus Christ provides an eternal redemption. And you have a clear conscience in the eyes of God. That's what the blood of Jesus does for us. Are you understanding maybe a little bit why I looked in this Christian life hymnal that we have back on the rack? There are 60 hymns, 60 hymns under the topic, Christ, comma, the blood of. 
Christ, comma, the blood of, there's 60 hymns in the index. Do you see why we sing about the blood of Christ? Because it is the essential ingredient in the forgiveness of my sin. He washed away my sin. There is a fountain flowing from Emmanuel's veins. Isn't that something? Um, We must move on. Number seven, another long passage here. It satisfies God's demand for sin's penalty once and for all. That's the point of 23 to 26. Let's read it. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Let me reread 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Okay, remember that he has just used an image from Exodus that his readers would have understood of Moses flinging blood all over the furniture of the tabernacle. Okay? Now he says... It was necessary for the copies of these heavenly things. The tabernacle was copied after the heavenly tabernacle. That's what all the the lampstand and all the things represented. So at the least, he's talking about flinging blood all over the furniture of the tabernacle. But I think there's more to it than that. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood, not his own, but of goats and bulls, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all. There's the title of our message, the once and for all work of Christ. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. A quick comment about these, uh, back up in verse 23, these copies of the heavenly things. I read one commentary where the commentator said there's nine different interpretations of what that means. What does that mean? There's, he came up with nine different understandings of what that could mean. But, you, but today, who is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Where does God dwell today? You know, we play cornhole. We eat in this room here. We play basketball in this room. We shoot our bows in this room. We do all kinds of things. We worship God in this room. And then people say, well, it's in the sanctuary. This is not a sanctuary. This is a room of carpet and lights that's not very good and carpet that's kind of ugly. It's just a room where we gather. Where is the sanctuary today? Where is the dwelling place of God? No, it's our bodies. Well, the church at large, yes, he dwells in his church. But our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? Peter talked about this. You could write in your notes 1 Peter 1.2 and 1 Peter 1.19 that he gave his precious blood to sprinkle his church, to purify his church, to sprinkle his people. And so at least there must be some imagery in here of the copies of the heavenly things that the dwelling place of God, which has now become us, and how are we purified from our sin? We are purified by the blood of Jesus Christ that takes away all sin. And so I think it's a reflection of the reality that the blood of Jesus Christ sprinkles us clean. I think I think that's legitimate. He doesn't say it, but I think it's reflected in there. We're on number... Seven, it satisfied God demands for sin's penalty once and for all. Let's let our eyes go there. But as it is, the middle of verse 26, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Aren't you glad that it's a once and for all thing? It was done. It was finished. When Jesus finished his work on the cross, he said it is finished. God accepted it as complete and he was done. 
And that's all because the blood of Jesus Christ or the death of Jesus Christ satisfied the demands of a holy God. And by faith, we have that salvation. Let's finish it. Verse 27, and just as it is, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Why would you wait eagerly for the judgment of God to come through Christ? Because you're covered with the blood. You're not afraid of Jesus. Are we afraid of Christ's return? We long for his return. Why? Because of his blood. His blood fits us for heaven. His blood is the commodity that we needed to make it to where we have no fear. We're identified, eternally redeemed with God, with a clear conscience. We've been sprinkled like the heavenly implements, like Moses flung blood across the tabernacle. Christ flings his blood across the church, and he purifies his church, and here we are. So the question today is, number eight is, the blood of Christ is the only thing that will spare one the judgment of God. Will spare one the judgment of God. It satisfies God's demand, number seven, for sin's penalty once and for all. Question number one, are you depending on anything other than the blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin? If you are, you need to be afraid of a holy God because there is nothing that God accepts for the forgiveness of sin except the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross and you go to the cross and by faith you accept his work as finished for you. You admit your sinfulness and you receive Christ's work as cleansing you through his blood. It's a spiritual reality to a universal spiritual law that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is through Jesus Christ, our Lord, his shed blood. Question number two, are you prepared for the appointed day of death and the judgment to follow? See, all of us will be judged But those without the blood of Christ will be judged much more differently. It's a joyous judgment for us, in a sense. Tuesday morning, I was with Gary Fry, the ER at Ranson. We're almost done. And I was with him three times. They brought Brenda back up with a pulse and respirations, and three times she faded. And then the doctor put his hand on Gary's shoulder, and he said, she's gone. And Gary said, we know where she is. Uh, Brenda was 56 years old, and on Tuesday morning, February 11th, it was appointed for her to die. Did you see that in the text? It is appointed unto man once to die, and then there will be judgment to follow. And um, Brenda had the most peaceful look on her face. I wonder what she saw with her spiritual eyes as her soul left her body. You don't know when your day is, your appointed day to die. But if you have the blood of Jesus Christ speaking on your behalf, that's another hymn we sing, the blood of Jesus speaks for me. You Christians are weird. You sing about blood all the time. Praise God for the blood of Jesus Christ. It saves us. It takes away fear of judgment. It takes away the fear of death. What are you counting on for your salvation? If it's anything other than the blood of Jesus Christ, you need to rethink your whole salvation. Secondly, are you ready for your judgment day? If you're not sprinkled in the blood of Christ, cleansed by the blood of Christ, you are not ready for your judgment day. Let's stand, please. Only you can take care of business with God. Only you can confess and forsake your sinfulness and ask God through the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse you. It's a spiritual reality that God credits to your account a cleansing for the blood of Christ, the death of Christ that was shed on Calvary. Do that right now. Make sure that the blood of Christ counts and speaks for you. Father, uh, this teaching is not easy. I pray that you, through your Holy Spirit, continue to encourage us in our Hebrew study. But thank you, Lord, for the reality of the blood of Jesus Christ and how superior it is. What a remarkable truth we've talked about today that we can have a clear conscience because of the blood of Christ. It's in his name we pray, asking your blessing on the week ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless.